Hey, Carolyn. Hi, Kathy. How are you today? I'm doing all right, thanks. How about you? I'm doing just grand, thank you. I understand that today we're going to have the opportunity to talk to somebody uh, with whom you have crossed paths in the past. I most certainly have, and I'm super excited to have this guest on our podcast today. And yes, he has agreed to join us and have a conversation. We're going to have a chance to talk with Dr. Jeff Myers today. He holds the Bresver Family Chair in End-of-Life Care in MAID, which is the first of its kind in Canada. A research chair, a clinical chair, an education chair. He's going to tell us all about it. But from our vantage point, I think the thing that's key here is that it recognizes both a palliative approach to care and medical assistance in dying. Wow, and I think immediately, I am so curious because I know that he is situated in Toronto. However, what you just said was that he has a, a national appointment. So that's ocean to ocean to ocean. So I'd be very interested to hear how that works because of course here in Canada, we are provincially and territorially um, purveyors of healthcare services. So, wow. And I just wanna do a heads up that he was recently in Thunder Bay presenting at the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health's Regional Palliative Care Conference. And he talked about the state of the relationship between palliative care and medical assistance in dying. And so Carolyn, I am super excited to get this conversation going. So let's go. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. We are really glad to have you at long last. And I want to start off by saying congratulations on your appointment as the Bradsford Family Chair in End-of-Life Care and MAID. And as far as I'm aware, that's the first of its kind in Canada. Is that correct, Jeff? Yes, it is correct, actually, Kathy. And thank you very much for the invitation to be here. I'm looking forward to this discussion very much. Um, it is the, the Bresver Family Chair is the first of its kind in Canada, for sure. And it might actually be um, the world. I'm not aware of any other academic chair that has been established anywhere that addresses these particular issues. And you know, Jeff, we've had conversations in the past that I think it's pretty amazing that this academic appointment talks about palliative care and made within the title of the same chair. How did that come about? So the Bresver family, I'll tell you a little bit about them. They um, really have had great vision and great foresight into the needs of Canadians. I think like most people, they had some personal experiences around end-of-life care with family and some friends. And, you know, those experiences had some great things and probably some not so great things. And they really recognized the opportunity to try and make some improvements in how we're communicating about end-of-life care in general. And more specifically, what they're interested in is supporting and I think this is actually absolutely the right direction, supporting family physicians and the comfort and, and uh, confidence that they have in discussing end of life. Um, and that includes advanced care planning and very specifically uh, medical assistance in dying. So Jeff, you and I crossed paths years before MAID was legalized in Canada and your role was as a palliative care physician. That's how we met the first time. So I'm interested what what captured your interest with this particular chair? And how do you see medical assistance and dying and palliative care working together? 
Oh, the, those are big questions. So let's tackle the first one. Um, as it relates to the chair role, I really think of um, end of life conversations in a broader sort of picture around serious illness communication. And very specifically, the Reservoir Family Chair is targeting family physicians. And I think why that's an important point to underscore is that, you know, in the best case scenario, family physicians have been a part of people's lives for ideally many years. And so there's a familiarity, there's a comfort, you know, with people's stories, with people's histories, what brings them to their various stages of their life. And so it position, potentially positions family physicians to be the ones that could really comfortably have or initiate conversations about end of life with people. So I think when you think about the sort of range and the spectrum of conversations that can happen, we're talking about advanced care planning, which is a time when there aren't necessarily decisions, but there may be opportunities to make sure that people understand their serious illness and what to expect in the future moving forward. And I think as illness progresses and people become more and more ill, then there are decisions to be made around various treatments and various approaches to care in general. Um, you know, the piece that's new really in, in Canadian context is, is the medical assistance in dying and how that all sort of weaves together in general and also in the family physician's context, I think is a bit um, unknown territory and is why the Bresver family very generously sort of um, focused their philanthropy on this particular chair. So I think to come to your question about palliative care, I think that a layered and um, challenging question, and so I'll speak for myself and my own story to begin with. You know, in 2017, I made a shift in my career professionally and changed locations or settings of, of the palliative care that I provided. I've been a palliative care physician for 25 years now. And in 2017 was my first introduction to care in the palliative care unit setting. Prior to that, I was working in, in outpatient clinics and in an acute care hospital consult team. So the kinds of patients that we would see that I would care for are quite different than in a palliative care unit. And very quickly, um, after I arrived at the palliative care unit, I had, you know, I hadn't had any experience with made up to that point, but, um, you know, a patient that had been admitted was my then requested made was my first sort of exposure and experience to it. And, you know, having done this for 25 years, made was not something, at least that was in my mind is something that I would need to be thinking about, to be honest with you, um, professionally. But very quickly, it became clear to me that this was something that I needed to better understand in order to care for uh, my patients on, on the palliative care unit. Our institution doesn't have a specific MADE team, which many do. And so it really was for me to personally figure out how MADE was going to sit with my practice and what that was going to look like moving forward. Right. Thanks for that. Jeff, I think that segues really nicely into asking you another question before we leave our conversation about the Bresver family chair. I'm really curious to ask you about how a chair, first of its kind in Canada, you're a physician here in Ontario, but is your scope national? And if so, our healthcare system is provincial. How are you navigating the chair, the relationship between the chair, of course, and the fact that you are centralized in one province? And that our, um, our healthcare is, of course, different depending upon where you live. Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, I think how I would respond is, you know, what do I hope are the deliverables from the chair? You know, when all is said and done with the chair, what will differ and where will it differ? And I think the focus, you know, it's, um, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm thinking about how challenging it is to change the behavior of clinicians. 
of actually practicing clinicians, it's actually really complicated and really difficult to change behaviors. And so the focus for my work in the Brisbane Family Chair is really around residents. So the postgraduate family medicine residents really focusing on them and their teachers as the population that I'm hoping to influence and hoping to sort of make the inroads in changing behaviors or shaping behaviors. And so ideally, when the work of the chair is complete, then to begin with, at least at the University of Toronto, which is where I'm based, all family physician graduates will have had experience with an exposure to communication skills training around serious illness communication, which includes advanced care planning and, and medical assistance and dying. And that we will measure the, the actual impact that we've had with these, with this skills training program. What that does then is establish a model that can be utilized anywhere in Canada and quite honestly, actually anywhere in the world for how to train learners, how to train people who are in their training so that we're actually setting them off on the right foot uh, as they enter into practice. Um, so that's actually the long-term goal is to influence trainees all across Canada. I love that, Jeff, and that makes me really excited uh, on so many levels. <laughs> Firstly, being that physicians would get some specific education and training before they are launched in serious illness conversations. And I hope <laughs> the residents that you are encountering recognize how lucky um, that is to, to have as part of their training and also as essential because as you know, I have many friends who are family physicians and who are phenomenal physicians, I would say, and do really well by the patients that they serve. But having those conversations is a tricky one in our system. And I know I've heard from a number of colleagues slash friends who said, you know, I was really hoping I'd retire before MAID was legalized and it became something I had to know about. And you're nodding your head at me. We're on video Zoom, just in case anyone's uh, wondering. And I'm loving it because he's nodding his head because I, I know this isn't a surprise to you, Jeff, that many people will say if their patient that they've been following for 20-something years who have those really essential relationships with, say to their family dog, I think I want to explore MAID, the family dog is at a bit of a loss of what to do. Is that accurate? Yes, I think that's accurate, Kathy. What I think is important to note, though, that in Canada, we're quite unique in terms of the breadth and depth of the skill of our family physicians. And I think what I'm finding is that family physicians actually have the skill. They just need a little bit of structure. They just need a little bit of guidance for something specific like made. There needs to be some, you know, easily available resources that cover the logistics or the pragmatic aspects of it. But I think in terms of the information that's needed for serious illness communication in general, family physicians actually have the information that patients and families need. And it's just giving them a little bit of structure around that because they also have the skill. I think our family physicians are unbelievably skilled and because of the relationships are in a much better position to, I would say, even introduce the conversations, let alone actually respond to patients and families who are making sort of requests or asking questions. And I just want to talk, you know, shout out to my phenomenal family physician who I've had to have serious illness conversations with because as we've talked about on this podcast, I had cancer. And my family doc was there at that moment of diagnosis and accompanied me through and helped me to navigate all the specialist reports and did all that kind of stuff. And she knows I do research and made. And she said, I hope we don't have to have that conversation. To which I could 
heartfully reply, I know if we do at some point, you're going to still be with me. Like, and, and that's that important relationship, that companionship that we look for within the healthcare system, specifically with family physicians. And I think you hit on a really important word there, navigation. Um, I think some of the strengths and the skills of our family physicians in Canada is even if it's something that they don't know much about, they'll figure it out and they'll figure out how to navigate. They'll figure out what a person needs in terms of the resources and the support. So that's why I'm really confident and that the Bresver family really were quite wise in focusing in on, on this population and I'm grateful to be sort of working with the family medicine residents and their teachers um, to sort of sort through some of the practical elements of what this would mean. I think what I really appreciate too, Jeff, with what you've been sharing with us is that uh, an interview you gave with Sinai Health, you shared that uh, the majority of MAID providers are not palliative care clinicians. And so really, um, the way that you've front-loaded our conversation today, it really seems to be that the understanding is that family physicians are the ones that are providing, uh, perhaps assessing and providing. Um, if the palliative care docs aren't the ones necessarily doing it. And so am I right in thinking that you are responding to what you're seeing and therefore kind of aiming the work that you do in your five-year appointment to really bolstering what's already happening at the front lines? Yeah. So a couple of things um, to start with that, you know, I had a look at the 2022 report that just released a few weeks ago. It's um, late November at this time of year for your listeners. And the 2022 data on Canadian statistics around made were just recently released. And it's quite variable province by province, who are the clinicians that are actually the providers of made, which I hadn't thought to dig down and look for that actual data, but it's actually really quite jarring how different each province is in terms of the, the providers of made. I do think that, you know, there's some provinces that have 80, 85% of their made uh, provisions completed by family physicians. There's one province that has a third that are completed by nurse practitioners. So there's a real massive diversity in what made provision looks like in terms of the specific providers province to province. So that's the first thing I would say. I think that the second thing is, you know, the comments that I made is around the distinction between palliative care clinicians and made providers or made clinicians. And I think that, that it is a, a sensitive, but an important topic to kind of um, dig into a little bit and talk about why there are differences, should there be differences, and what those differences might actually be, if that's okay. So, you know, when I think about why there are differences, so first of all, if we go back to sort of when the legislation first went through in 2016, one of the things that is different about Canada's approach to MAID is that access to MAID was legislated but access to palliative care was not at the time. And in other countries that have legislated assisted dying care, they've at the same time legislated access to palliative care. And so, you know, why that can be tricky is, you know, you, you guys would be familiar with this, but in remote areas of Canada, it means that, you know, people who live in, in areas that are remote will have access to MAID, but not necessarily access to palliative care. And in the initial sort of cohort of patients or of people that had access to MAID, it really was those individuals who were at or near the end of their life. And so the relevance to palliative care was really quite important in that first sort of five years of 
enacting the made legislation. And so that was one of the first things was to not also legislate access to palliative care created the potential for people to be requesting made who had symptoms that were not well managed as an example, and that were potentially exploring an assisted death in the absence of high quality pain and symptom management. And that just, that didn't sit well, I think, with the palliative care community in, in many respects. So that's kind of one of, one of the things that made it tricky. I think the, one of the other things is when you look actually at um, how things have played out, there's not nearly enough palliative care clinicians to actually provide the palliative care that's needed across the country. And so to, I think early on, there were some assumptions that palliative care would sort of subsume made because of the perhaps similarities in, in the population that we're serving. But they're actually, you know, thank goodness there was a cohort of clinicians that really, you know, felt strongly about providing made care that were not palliative care clinicians because there simply would not have been the, the human resources to provide the kind of high quality made care that's necessary. And I think the third sort of thing about the distinction between palliative care and made comes in the near future changes and the advances in permissibility that are being pursued in Canada. So I'm, you know, we'll talk about this, I'm sure a little bit more in detail, but what we've now expanded far beyond what traditionally would be thought of as palliative care populations. So, you know, made currently is available to those whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. And so in that case, it really does take it out of the um, palliative care expertise and sort of skill in terms of addressing some of the needs of these populations. So for all of those reasons, I think it was actually quite important to be distinct and continues to be moving forward about the two sort of um, fields. Wow, that was incredibly helpful because Kathy and I have embarked on many conversations uh, between the uh, we too, but also with others in this realm. And, and I really appreciate how you've um, broken that down. Um, yes. So yeah, that, um, yes, thank you very much. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, Carolyn, that what I also think is important is that palliative care clinicians have a really important skill set. And that is around how you assess a person who's made a desire to die statement. So for 25 years in my entire career, whenever there's a person who says something along the lines of, I'm just done, or I've had it, or I, I just don't want to fight anymore, you know, something that kind of infers that they're wanting things to be over for themselves, that's a skill set in how you actually approach that and how what you do to sort of tease apart what's underlying that kind of statement. And what's happened over the last five years since MADE has been available, or sorry, seven years that MADE has been available is that it's given the public a language. Um, MADE has given the public a language. And so there are many times that people will make a request for MADE, but aren't actually requesting their life to be over. They're actually, they're using sort of a request for MADE as a way to communicate that they're suffering. And so I think there's a really important role for palliative care to help our colleagues, our patients and families who find themselves in these places of distress from their suffering and that we not just take a made request as a made request, that there's actually, you know, some unpacking that we do with that, which palliative care clinicians are particularly skilled at doing. And so I'm not at all saying that palliative care clinicians don't have a role to play for made. I think it's 
there's a really important skill set that we need to be accessing mindfully. I totally agree. And I, I think, Jeff, sometimes this reminds me of like 20 something years ago in palliative care when I'm going to pick on oncologists. I apologize. But oncologists would say there's nothing more that can be done for you. It's time to call on the palliative care team. And that nothing more to done was such a fallacy because there is so much that can be done from a creative pain and symptom management, psychosocial perspective, living well until you die, all the things that a palliative approach to care does so well. And I kind of feel in some ways that we're at that stage again. When people are requesting medical assistance in dying, we're not spending that time to say, what's happening for you right now? What can we access that maybe hasn't been accessed? Or what can we talk about, dig deeper in, as you say, about that suffering? What does that look like? Um, and we're not necessarily having those conversations in the way that we could. And that's why I get so excited when I hear that's the education that's being provided for the new family physicians coming out so that they will have those skills and be well positioned to have those serious illness conversations, but in a way that recognizes suffering. I think you also hit on a really important point there, Kathy, in that for 20 years, what palliative care clinicians have really, and clinicians, educators, and researchers and quality improvers have really um, tried to focus on is the importance of palliative care playing a role much earlier in, in a person's illness, right? And so when, when MAID came along in 2016, to then be linked with very specifically and directly end of life once again, many, I think of our, many of our colleagues were reluctant to sort of subsume MAID because again, you know, does that actually reinforce a lot of people's perceptions of palliative care being associated with end of life? So it's a really complex and tricky sort of um, scenario. And I think it's, it's, I understand all sort of perspectives or many perspectives when it comes to this. But at the end of the day, I do think that palliative care clinicians have some really important skills that must be accessed in order to really, truly meet people's needs, individual people's needs. Agreed. And I am hoping that the legalization of MAID inspires us to have a more robust system of palliative care across our country, um, recognizing in general that how Canadians die matters and they're looking for that true choice at the end of life. You mentioned, Jeff, about upstream in terms of offering a palliative approach to care. And that makes me think a little bit about what that looks like in medical assistance and dying and conversations around advance requests. And I know this is something you have a lot of thoughts about. Um, can you describe for our listeners what an advance request is and how does that fit into the MAID spectrum? Sure. So, um, again, not yet um, part of the MAID care in Canada. But advance requests are part of the assisted dying care and legislation in other countries like, like the Netherlands and like Belgium. And so what we know of from those countries is that what a person has the legal ability to do is write down in a document, you know, the conditions under which they would want an assisted dying procedure to be pursued if they have lost decision-making capacity. So the illness that's most commonly sort of thought of with this is dementia. And so if a person, um, so I'll just use myself, if I am worried that I'm going to develop dementia, if I lived in the Netherlands or Belgium, I could write down what are the conditions 
that if I were to become demented and lose the ability to make decisions for myself, what are the conditions that I would say that would tell my physician at the time that please proceed with assisted dying? Um, that's what's available in other countries. So by advance request, it, it's a request for made in advance of the actual procedure being relevant or applicable to a person. And why do you think that's important to people? I think when people have family members or friends or loved ones that have experienced dementia and they've witnessed the, the suffering that can occur, they've experienced their own suffering from the loss of a person who they love as the disease advances. And, you know, people tend to, to sort of think to themselves, I wouldn't want that for myself. And so there's a fear that can happen around sort of what life might look like if I were to develop dementia and not wanting to um, burden others, not wanting to burden my family, my loved ones, not wanting to um, experience what can be perceived as the indignity of that illness in particular, or of not having the ability to make decisions for oneself. So, you know, the underlying drivers for people wanting to make or pursue an advance requests are logical. It makes really good sense that a person would want to try, if they were able to, to try and um, maintain some autonomy around their decisions at a time when they're no longer able to make decisions for themselves. It makes logical sense that people would want to pursue that. Thanks for that, Jeff. It's just occurred to me that because you've been um, so wonderful in clarifying some of the issues that have long been on the table for uh, Kathy and myself and the guests that we are privileged to speak with, I'm wondering as a physician, if you would kind of encapsulate, kind of go over those in Canada right now who are against advanced requests, where are the arguments against its use coming from? And really, what are people worried about? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I think what we can do is look at um, the whole concept of advanced directives. So advanced directives are currently available in many provinces. They are a provincial, um, the differences that exist across Canada are provincial differences because the federal level can't sort of mandate something like an advanced directive. It has to come down to the provinces who have their individual sort of healthcare consent acts in Ontario and, and whatever as the example. So to be more specific in Ontario, as an example, there is not such a thing as an advanced directive. It's actually not in the Healthcare Consent Act. However, in British Columbia, in Quebec, they do have advanced directives. And what an advanced directive is, is sort of a piece of paper that, again, is a way for a person to communicate what they would or would not want in the future around specific kinds of care if they didn't have the capacity to make those decisions. So, for example, um, part of an advanced directive would be identifying the person that I would want to make decisions for me if I didn't have uh, the, the, if I had lost the ability to make decisions, that would be one part of it. Another part might be, these are the kinds of interventions that I would or that I would not want. And these are the conditions under which I would or would not want them as well. So advanced directives have long been part of the healthcare sort of fabric. Um, the problem is, is that there's really clear evidence that advanced directives do not actually impact the care that a person would receive at the end of their life. And in fact, many times advanced directives end up causing more distress for families than help for families that are in the position of having to make decisions. And I'll give you an example. 
So let's say I'm a 70 year old person and I come home and my brother is in the intensive care unit and I'm visiting him every day. He's intubated and he's had all kinds of challenges with the ventilator that comes along with being intubated. And I say to my spouse, when I get home one day, you know, for heaven's sakes, don't ever let me be hooked up to machines. And then cut to six months later, I develop a pneumonia and have to go into a merge with my spouse and I get really quite sick and I've lost decision-making capacity. And the eMERGE physician says to my spouse, we need to hook Jeff up to machines, but it'll only be for a day or two. And I've put my spouse in this really difficult position because I've said, you know, for heaven's sakes, don't ever let me be hooked up to machines. But this eMERGE physician is saying, but it'll only be for a day or two. And so even just with that simple comment, don't hook me up to machines, I've ended up causing a tremendous amount of stress for my spouse because I haven't communicated the why. Why is it that I wouldn't want to be hooked up to machines? What is it about machines? What was I seeing with my brother that made me want to react in that way? That's the information that would be helpful for my spouse when it comes down to the, that time of emergency. And what advanced directives are trying to do are standardize the kinds of information that we would be giving to our substitute decision makers. And unfortunately, they just don't do that in that way because the focus tends to be on specific treatments. If, you know, I had been asked in that scenario, what is it about a ventilator? I would have said, oh, you know, the fact that he's not getting out, of, he's not unlikely to be himself again. He's, there's no way he's going to be able to talk. There's no way he's going to be able to interact with his grandchildren. If that's the important thing that's actually driving, don't hook me up to machines, that's the information that's going to be helpful to to my spouse. So to bring back to the context of an advanced request for made, what that means is we really don't have as human beings, the ability to make decisions in advance of life actually happening. So, you know, it would be very difficult for me to say, you know, under these circumstances, this is what I would and wouldn't want. Because when it comes in the absence of really clinical details, a person can't make decisions about the very specific information about the kind of care that they would want or not want. So my worry is when we look at other countries that do have advanced requests, the ability for physicians and family members to interpret the information that people have written down is unbelievably complex and challenging and causes an unimaginable amount of distress to the family members and to the physicians in trying to interpret what these wishes that are documented actually mean and whether or not they could or should move ahead with MAID. So interesting. And again, thank you for your ability to clarify. What it really brings to mind immediately for me is this idea that Kathy and I are so keen on um, well, this podcast came about because we want Canadians to be able to make informed choice. And what you're alluding to, if I've inferred correctly, is people seeking an advanced request are actually not holding the information necessary to make a request in advance because we as, first of all, as lay people have no clinical understanding of what that might look like. But also, um, we don't know, as you say, as squishy humans, with any kind of certainty, what will be the case. So speculation um, really is misinformed, you know, put that way. Yeah. And, and I think in this kind of scenario, we feel responsible to prepare for the worst. 
or sort of imagine the worst. And, and that's human nature is to want to sort of avoid the worst, the worst case scenario to the extent that we can. And so again, it makes logical sense why we would want to pursue advanced requests, but I really, I really worry about the position that we're putting either the clinician in to interpret these requests or even worse yet, the families to enact the request. I know that in the Netherlands and Belgium, there's a tremendous um, weight that's put on the clinicians that are providing the assisted dying in both directions from families. So families can be very um, demanding around proceeding with an advance request, and they can also be refusing around proceeding with an advance request. And there tends not to be much middle ground there. And so clinicians are in a really difficult position, I think. In theory, advanced requests are a really great thing, but I think for the context of made, I really worry how they're going to be implemented in a way that considers the needs of all sort of stakeholders, patients, families, and, and the clinicians. And I think that is so important. And sometimes things happen that we don't anticipate. Like, um, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding when made was first legalized, we kind of thought people who, for whom death was reasonably foreseeable, would request made and have it as in their back pocket as an alternative if things got really rough. And dare I say, I think, you know, Canadians were surprised at the number of people who accessed made, who got the request and died using made in a way that we didn't think was going to happen. We thought our stats would be more like Oregon, where many people didn't follow through with their request to access assisted dying. So I wonder what it is about Canadian culture. Is it about what we're cultivating in terms of discussions on end of life that sometimes we're surprised? Any thoughts about that? I know that's existential at best. Well, it, it might be actually, there might be a real pragmatic element to it because in Oregon, you know, if you think about the method or the approach, it's a prescription there, right? So it's a prescription of oral medications that people would take. And I think that the assurance that having a prescription has or gives to people can be quite profound. In Canada, I think the assurance as it's evolved over, over the last few years is that the actual procedure can happen if it needs to happen. And so there haven't been the kinds of back pocket need for a prescription in the same sorts of ways. I will say that as the conversation about advanced requests, um, you know, moves forward, I do think that the idea of sort of back pocket and reassurance is going to resurface um, in some of the same ways that it has with uh, death not needing to be reasonably foreseeable and the changes that occurred a couple of years ago. Agreed. And, and I think it means more than ever, we have to have the conversations around what's going to be important to Canadians at the end of their life and what they're hoping to be able to talk about with their healthcare providers, be able to sustain relationships with healthcare providers and participate in the democracy, I guess, in our country. Yeah. And I don't mean to sort of um, be anti-advance requests. That's not what I'm sort of espousing here. I do want us to learn what we can from other jurisdictions and that have been doing this for 20 years and, and not think that Canada is any different when it comes down to the mechanics of how decisions are made. That's a very human experience. And, and so what we can learn from, from other jurisdictions, I think is critical. 
I absolutely agree with that. And I think we need to be paying attention, particularly with what we're anticipating is going to happen in March 2024 um, with the expansion of Track 2 so that people can access MAID when mental health is the primary diagnosis. Um, it makes me wonder, though, if Canadians, we're working towards looking at what's happening in other countries. What do you think, Jeff, dare I ask, what do you think other countries are learning from us? Well, if I can say one thing about the March 2024, first of all, because there's something within Canada that I think is really interesting in that just a couple of months ago, Quebec passed the legislation that actually takes, um, you know, made for when mental disorder, mental illness is the primary illness, takes that off the table. So in Quebec, I'm not sure how they will do this come March 2024, but in the legislation that they passed, Bill 11, they were very clear that mental health cannot be the primary diagnosis for a person requesting made. And on top of that, they actually proceeded with advanced requests being made legal in Quebec. And so I'm not sure how, what we can learn from the experiences, sort of what led to Quebec making that decision about mental illness as well as events requests and what we can learn from each other. So that's the first thing that I would say to question there, Kathy. And I'm just going to, sorry, Jeff, interject and piggyback on that because I think you're right. And that's one of the challenges we need to pay attention to what's happening provincially because if I can add something else on that I think Quebec has done, it has also um, passed legislation saying that if you are a publicly funded institution, you can't refuse access to MAID, right? So you're right. Within our own national boundaries, we are doing things differently. And so, yes, we have to pay attention to what's happening in each province. And just for your listeners, you know, in the rest of the country, it remains a choice for institutions to provide assisted dying. And so there are many different kinds of healthcare organizations like hospices or hospitals that sort of organizationally conscientiously object, but the legislation in Quebec made it so that organizations couldn't, um, you know, make that sort of decision. Um, whether, you know, I won't weigh into sort of my opinion on that, um, you know, for better or for worse, I do think that the reality is this is a, something that needs to be available to all Canadians and that the thought of, I'll just say this, the thought of transferring a person to a different organization or a different facility at any point in this process is hard for me to wrap my head around. I wish it was hard for me to wrap my head around, but we see it regularly in my home community, unfortunately. So yeah, but I want to piggyback to the question I was asking. What do you think the rest of the world is thinking about what's happening in Canada and what they're learning from us? You know, I really hope that the rest of the world, what they're learning is how to prepare at the individual organizational level or the individual clinician level even. There's so much that's written on the ethical elements of you know the various populations and whether or not, an opinion piece is on whether or not um, you know that something like an assisted dying should move forward. And what I really hope other countries can learn from Canada is it's no longer debatable whether made is available in Canada. It is. It's a legislated right. And so how individual organizations, how within institutions, how an individual clinician figures out how to implement this for themselves, for itself, that's where I think the, there's rich information that could be really helpful to countries that themselves are moving forward with, with their own uh, national legislation. And so I really, 
I encourage research like the work that you're that you guys are doing. I encourage where we're actually hearing qualitatively from people and their experiences. Um, I really think that you know descriptive studies that are outlining the kinds of discussions that occur in order to arrive at decisions at the individual organization level. That's where I think we can be the most helpful because those are the things that actually fill the time of clinicians and patients and family are these navigation type issues to come back to that word, Kathy and Carolyn, around that. And so if, if other countries are able to learn, it would be navigating the actual day-to-day -day mechanics of an assisted dying process. And I get the sense that countries, I, I know, having been at the McGill Palliative Care Conference, that a lot of our colleagues in Australia are paying close attention to exactly what you're describing, what is happening in those individual interactions and in different areas of our country. So while you are in the center of Ontario, if not Canada, as Torontonians like to think, I'm joking, Jeff, um, you know, someone like me in a little bit more rural of an area, our experiences are different. So recognizing that we have that diversity uh, within Canada, and I think that can be one of the things that we share. Is there something that's happening in Canada that you hope other countries don't pick up on or that they don't learn from us? You know, I think the it had been when Canada legislated made in 2015-16, it had been many years since a major country had moved forward with an assisted dying process. You know, Netherlands and Belgium, for example, you know, it's been many, many years, 2002, 2004, I think is when their legislation went through. So, you know, 15, 15 sort of 20 years. And I think what Again, initially, the focus was on people that were near or at the end of their life. And so the challenge in how this fit with palliative care was really front and center. And I think that in conversations I've had with colleagues from Australia and colleagues from the UK that have moved forward, what they've been distressed by is the divide that seems to exist um, within the palliative care community and that that often is played out in peer-reviewed journals and in the literature. And I think what they're telling me is that they're really taking a different approach in terms of how palliative care is engaged in the early conversations around how this might look for their countries. And so I think that would be another thing that other countries you know, could learn is how to, at least with the initial sort of legislation and implementation, how to really make sure that everyone's at the table and contributing in a way that's meaningful and is respectful. Um, because I think the long-term benefits of that would be important to consider. I agree. I think that um, dying and death is something that crosses all sorts of borders and cultures and um, that we need to pay close attention and learn from and with each other about how best to take care of one another at the end of life. Yeah, I totally agree. I think too, um, what you've been able to reinforce and uh, in our discussion is that there really has to be an understanding of what logistically is the word that you used and perhaps um, theoretically looks like it will be viable. Um, we're talking about um, human beings who bring a multitude, bring myriad conditions and emotions and and yes, emotions aren't actions, but a lot of human existence is, is fueled by emotion. So we're looking at the Netherlands and Belgium, um, and it's not a cautionary tale per se, but I think it's really important to realize that 
perhaps just because we can do something, because it makes logistical sense or, or it seems viable, um, have we really truly understood the emotional, spiritual, existential components of what's actually taking place? I think that's, yeah, that's it's something that I really grapple with thinking about practice. So, Jeff, if you were to identify something that Canada has done well, that we should be proud of regarding a medical assistance in dying, what might that be? You know, I think one of the things that is really important is that Canada listened to its citizenry, right? You know, for, I remember, <laughs> for better or for worse, I remember in the, in the early 90s when Sue Rodriguez, the person who had ALS, you know, at that time picked up the baton and, and moved you know, the needle forward. I remember that. And I remember, you know, the discussions that we had. And I think that in the subsequent 20 years, what the Canadian government really did was listen to the citizenry. And it's been uncomfortable, but clearly important that we listen to the public and what the public sort of feels is important to them and move forward with that in Canada. So I really, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of Canadians um, and the Canadian government for having really listened to its citizenry. And that's an important thing to be proud of. And, and I would say while sometimes it feels like it happened quickly, it didn't. Like I remember doing research and finding one of the first Gallup polls that I could come across the year I was born. And over 70% of Canadians said they wanted to have access to assisted dying. So there was a lot of thought and lengthy time and champions such as Sue Rodriguez, um, who led the way to get where we are now. Absolutely. So the unfortunate flip side of that question is, though, Jeff, what do you think we should be doing better in Canada regarding medical assistance in dying? I think it, 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 um, it sort of picks up on some of the things that we've already talked about. So, you know, the focus on the citizens and the citizenry in some ways has kind of been at the expense of two other important groups, and that's, you know, the clinicians, but even more importantly, I would say the families and the substitute decision makers. And as we're thinking about sort of advanced requests, as someone who pushes the IV medications, I'm really mindful of the potential distress that can happen when the complexity of cases continues to increase and the potential for substitute decision makers to need to be weighing in for the setting of advanced requests is really important. And if we don't have the supports in place for family members to actually be making these decisions. So I, again, not to harp on advanced requests, but I would say like really expanding our focus on the needs of clinicians and the needs of families and SDMs is an incredibly important thing to consider. And substitute decision makers, the SDMs, their work is hard and they need the support from caring healthcare providers. And we all know that that's not done in a five minute visit or stopping by the bedside, that that takes time and energy from both the substitute decision maker, family member, and the person who has those requests in conjunction with all the healthcare providers. And so when you go back and roll back to those serious illness conversations, that helps to pave the way for that. And just so I can revisit that issue of, you know, the fact that we are human beings providing this care, you know, the, the, real upswing in the amount of uh, articles that I've read in recent times post-COVID about moral distress and clinicians experiencing moral distress, moral injury. And so that really speaks to what you said, Jeff, about putting clinicians uh, and SDMs, as you said, in positions where 
there is those real ethical, moral dilemmas, questions. Do I, don't I? Am I truly doing what what my, what my this person wanted, want, etc.? So I, I think, yeah, I think that's a really important point. And it brings us to our final question. My favorite, the magic wand question, which I wish we all had magic wands. So Jeff, if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about how medical assistance in dying is delivered or understood or utilized in Canada, what might that be? It's a tough one. Um, the magic wand question is always a tough one. I think, you know, you've had um, my colleague Stephanie Green as a guest already, and I'm going to steal a little bit from her, but but actually take it one step further and come back to, you know, the the Bresver family and their vision uh, with this with this chair role is the what Stephanie talked about was was that in Netherlands, um, the majority of, of assisted deaths being provided by the clinicians who know the person the longest, the, their family physician. And if I had a magic wand, what I would say is that there would be an infrastructure available so that the once a year, once every couple of years that it actually might happen for a family physician, that there is the support that's in place for that family physician to access in order to actually keep that circle of care um, as contained as it can be and as familiar with each other as it can be. So you know, specifically, there's some highly specialized clinicians that are available to family physicians in other countries that help the physicians actually navigate the process. And so I think that something like that, if I had a magic wand, I would have a system in place where there were supports that were available to clinicians who very much want to be supporting the patients and their families as they go down this journey. That sounds like an amazing magic wand response. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you. We have so enjoyed talking with you. Um, I think you might have to be a repeater, Jeff. We might have to have you on and get Because <laughs> I've got other things I want to ask here. <laughs> That's what I was aiming for. So I've achieved that. Thank you so much for the opportunity. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciated having an opportunity to speak with Jeff today. Again, I'm going to zero in on that idea of clarification. I really appreciated that he took the time to talk to us about how he understands the difference between palliative care and made provision. I'm truly grateful because this is why we're here, Kathy, to help our listeners and beyond to make informed choice. And ourselves. Let's be honest, right? It, and it, it's great to hear from a skilled educator and a clinician and someone who knows what it's like at the bedside in terms of having those serious illness conversations, in terms of having discussions around medical assistance and dying, and then turning around and paying attention to the system react to something like medical assistance and dying. And Jeff really, for me, helped to unpack a few things that I had some questions about. Absolutely. And I think, again, because you and I are so interested in that educative piece, understanding that his focus is on medical residents and helping residents, uh, medical students become equipped with the skills and tools that are needed to what Jeff called really start having those communication with family and, and patients, communicating the why, you know, having those conversations where you were able to really zero in on the why. And, and it makes me feel hopeful. Like I said in the conversation, you know, that if there's someone like Jeff out there 
helping people to cultivate their communication skills around serious illness, around options that are available for people at the end of life. I feel hopeful that we're going to have a next generation of clinicians that continue to grow their communication skills, recognizing that it's part of lifelong learning. Yeah. And I think, too, what hit home for me as well is to go back to what I shared uh, before we had an opportunity to speak to Jeff about how somebody situated in one part of the country is able to really look at the country as a whole, but as individual pieces creating a whole. So his stats on the fact that, you know, in some provinces and territories, 80 to 85 percent of made provision is provided by family physicians. And then another example of a third being nurse practitioners. So, uh, you know, having that five-year appointment gives him the opportunity to then really have a look at what's happening in all the pockets around the country. Because um, we're a country of of many, many systems and many, many um, ways that things are happening. And I, for one, would love to know more about what's happening in different provinces. And so let's put a shout out there. Let's ask if you're a nurse practitioner or a family doc or any physician in a different province that's not Ontario or BC, and you're engaging with people who are accessing MAID. So maybe you're an assessor or you're a provider and you've got some stories and would like to have a conversation with us. We'd love to hear from you. To the one province in Canada that, of course, is speaking in another language officially, c'est toujours possible de parler en français avec vous. So if you're um, in listening to us in the beautiful province of Quebec or in a part of our country where French is your first language, there are ways that we can help share your story about medical assistance and dying. So please, as Kathy says, our big ask is to lean in and let us know what's happening in your part of Canada. Let's get those conversations happening. Thanks for listening. Did